Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome into another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode of the podcast is another entry in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Sarah Young. The incident of Aaron Alexis had more impact than Edward Snowden. Um, they just took place around, uh, Alexis, I think, was in September of the same year, um, and Edward Snowden's was in June. And either the combination of both or the fact that um, Alexis apparently had more online work or, or or they, sorry, there, more of the flaws of the background investigation process were revealed in Aaron Alexis's issues rather than Snowden's background investigation. A lot of times the predictive policing is thought of as like this positivist piece of science that it has no bias any longer. And it's just full of reinforcing already biased views, even if it doesn't, if it professes not to, so... You'll hear more from Sarah later in the podcast. Today is April 7th, and many of us in the United States and abroad are living under stay-at-home orders from our state governments as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. Recently, my wife and I were quarantined after she was exposed to the virus at her work. She's an ER nurse. In fact, She was exposed by one of the earliest cases, if not the earliest case, in our county. She is back on the front lines now, three weeks later, and we were lucky to either avoid the virus or were asymptomatic. Thank you to her and all of the first responders who are currently bearing the weight of the world on their shoulders. One of the goals of the Big Rhetorical Podcast is to build network communities of folks working in the field and in the discipline. So, I want to tell you about three CFPs coming up in the next few weeks. The first CFP is for hopes and anxieties for the future of rhetoric and composition. From the CFP. This collection will be a potentially subversive approach to the current questions driving writing programs. Online and at every major conference, composition scholars have increasingly, especially since 2016, leaned on each other's expertise and experience to remake their courses in an effort to better prepare students for a, quote, post-fact, end quote, post-anthropocenic ablest, openly racist world. This collection gathers formalized responses to these sincere concerns and, in the process, turns the field's lore into published scholarship. It speaks to scholars wanting to make their writing courses influential to and useful for a generation of students who often see Scott who often see college solely as a stepping stone to their future careers. How might we invigorate students to see reading and writing as path to agency and voice in this fractured world? Proposals are due May 29th, 2020. Conditional acceptances June 26th, 2020, with first complete drafts due September 25th, 2020. For more information on hopes and anxieties for the future of rhetoric and composition, reach out to Jennifer Juskavitz and Rachel McCabe. Jennifer is at St. Mary's. Rachel is at LaSalle.
and more information can be found at https colon backslash backslash rachelann4662.wixsite.com slash future of retcon. The second CFP is for if at first you don't succeed, writing rhetoric and the question of failure. From the CFP, scholars in writing studies can learn a lot by using failure as a conceptual lens to study and to study and reflect upon all aspects of the complex work we do. For this collection, writing researchers from all subfields of writing studies are invited to share their thoughts, experiences, and studies on the concept of failure. Qualitative and quantitative empirical research studies are especially encouraged and welcome. Some possible topics include failure in relation to writing pedagogy, student failures and instructor failures, in relation to WPA or other administrative work, and identity, failure in multilingual students, failure in emotions, failure in risk-taking, failure in choice, so much more. This collection will consist of two types of chapters, longer research chapters of about 7,500 words and shorter narrative chapters of about 2,000 words. Chapter proposals will become part of an overall proposal in search of a potential publisher. And you can email your proposal to Stephen Corbett at stephen.corbett at tamuk.edu. Those proposals are due May 15th. Finally, the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy has a CFP out for a general issue with a forum on data and computational pedagogy. From the CFP, the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy, JITP, seeks scholarly work at the intersection of technology with teaching, learning, and research. We are interested in contributions that creatively take advantage of the affordances of digital platforms and critique their limitations. We invite both textual and multimedia submissions, employing interdisciplinary and innovative approaches in the humanities, sciences, and social sciences. Besides scholarly papers, the submissions can consist of audio or visual presentations and interviews dialogues or conversations, creative artistic works, manifestos, or other scholarly materials, including work that addresses the labor and care considerations of academic technology projects. For this issue, they will accept both general submissions on any topic within the field and contributions destined for a subsection featuring conversations on data and computational pedagogy. As algorithms dynamically categorize, distribute, and elevate certain kinds of information and play an increasing role in shaping experiences of data, how are we fostering students' critical engagement with using and making data? This featured section will showcase submissions addressing the challenges and opportunities emerging from thinking about computation pedagogy, and data literacy together. More information can be found at the website jitp.commons.gc.cuny.edu. Submission deadline for full manuscripts is June 1st, 2020. 
Sarah Young is a leading fellows postdoc, Marie Sklodowska Curie co-fund program in the Media Algorithms and Privacy and Surveillance MAPS group in the Media Communications Department at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. She studies digital surveillance, predictive investigations, rhetoric, and technical communication. I first met Sarah when I attended her panel at ATTW in 2019. She had some smart things to say then, for sure, and smart things to say to me during our interview. I, for one, am glad she reached out. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sarah Young. So, where'd you do your bachelor's degree work at? Um, at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. University of Missouri, Kansas City. Are you from Kansas City? I am. It is. It will always be home. BA in English, journalism, and creative writing. Yeah, yeah. They combined them both at the at the time. So I did a. So you're on more on the journalism side, right? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know if my creative writing teachers were. <laughs> I I got a lot. I remember lots of red pen. So I uh, I stopped with that side. So that's an English degree. Do you always want to be a journalist, I guess, growing up? Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I think that my like my high school, I really connected with my high school English teacher, and she was encouraging, and I thought, that, you know what, that's a skill I can do. Like, it, it felt good to do it, and, and I, I guess it came easier for me. So you're there at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, working on your English degree in journalism. <laughs> you graduate. Well, I guess you graduated in 2003 or four, 2003. Three. Yeah. Three. 2003. Right around the time of the Iraq invasion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, around 2002, I ended up getting like an internship with like a gut, the government, it was a government contractor, but it was doing like a government job. And then I um, ended up working full time with them after, after that, because it was the, the economy was a little shaky then. Um, so I thought this looks like a very stable job. I'm going to go ahead and go, go for this. Um, they were looking for people that could, uh, and the job could interview lots of people and write reports and what whatnot so so it was a good fit for journalism tell me a little bit more about that job what what was that job doing which <laughs> which uh which government agency was that that you worked with and you worked there for a long time right yeah i worked there from 2002 for two well 2002 to 2014 the first year was like an uh, or nine months was an internship and then as soon as That's i graduated right. i got the job um it was uh, it was with a company called U.S. Investigation Services, but it, that company had recently been a privatized entity from the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, like the part of the Federal Investigative Service at the time that did uh, background investigations on people that needed security clearances for the U.S. government. So if you wanted to work for the like a defense contractor or any pretty much any or defense anybody i guess <laughs> could uh, um that needed a clearance we would interview them and do their background and kind of write up a report on them so yeah it was uh, un unfortunately it was a it was a stable business during a, a wartime uh 
economy for the for the U.S. government. So I stayed there till 2014 and got my master's. In the meantime, they supported paying for like the master's during that time, and then I ended up wanting to go back and do my PhD. So I got my master's in 2007. And then didn't go back to school until 2012 when I thought, you know what, I think I want to go back and do my master's. And if I don't go back now, I'm going to have to redo my language requirement. Um, so <laughs> I had five years to, to do that. So I thought this is, this well, let's is perfect. Talk about, <laughs> let's talk about that, though, Sarah. That's certainly more than the language requirement <laughs> expiration prompted you to go back for your master's degree. Uh, so you're working from 03 to 05 there uh, for the government. Contract, as a government contractor, what prompted you to go back beyond just like you mentioned, the language requirements? Like, Why did you want to continue as an academic? And, and also, a, a part of this question answer, I'm sorry, might probably also answer, why did you choose Arizona State University, too? <laughs> well, I'll say I, I worked, I lived in Kansas City until 2004, um, so I worked the two years at the government job there. And then I, I knew that I had family in Phoenix, so I thought, I am going to go to Phoenix because I want to never have snow again. I want to be outside. I want the sunshine. And uh, so, yeah, I, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I didn't know any family. But with, I mean, I knew of them, but we didn't weren't, like, super close. Um, so, so I just decided to get a transfer there with the, the government job. And then I was in... Uh, Ahwatukee, which is like an area of, of Phoenix that's close to Tempe, and it's like, well, I'm going to go to Arizona State. Let me let me see if I can do this. <laughs> so I applied, and I was accepted in 2005. So I did that 2005-2007. But I wanted to go back to academia because I like the stability of the government job, but at the same time, when you're in a bureaucratic organization, there's, and especially like a law enforcement agency type work that it's like very black and white there's like this is the way you do it this is the handbook you have to meet expectations like this is the way you do it but I, there is no gray areas and not that academia is gray areas but it's the buzzword problematize <laughs> like in, in academia I feel like you know like you 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 look at you it, that's problematization is like this gray area where you like you don't look at it you you get to question things and I like to question things I didn't like to be told well, I mean, not that I didn't like to be told, but it, it felt more comfortable for me to be able to see the gray areas rather than just do black and white and and no no answer uh, no deviation from like a handbook. So, so that's why it appealed to me. At least if I worked at a government job, I was going to do that to get my master's on the side, and then I was going to be done because I just needed my master's. And if you're going to get your PhD, that's like a full time job that you you want to be a professor or something like that. I, I didn't need that. So when, when so when you when you got into the MA program, uh, did you intend did you go into that program with the idea of like, I'm going to write a thesis that might be titled Internet Transparency and the Department of Homeland <laughs> Security? <laughs> or was it a was it a time where you were like, I'm going to go into this MA program and I'm going to see what's out there. Did you you know what I mean? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I was it was definitely like. I didn't honestly know, uh, I, 
I didn't know what rhetoric, <laughs> I didn't know what rhetoric was. I couldn't understand it. I remember sitting at the pool, like trying to read a book, like my first reading. And I'm like, what is this? I don't know what <laughs> I can't, I don't even understand any words in here. What am I doing to myself? But yeah, it. I, I wanted, I thought like, you know what? They had some linguistics classes and I thought, you know, as a government per, like person trying to do investigations, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll learn like, the art of argument or like trying to to maybe f- figure out how to to talk to people and maybe listen a little bit better than I had before kind of like applying like critical thinking to to what sure. they're saying. so that's I think You're why an I, interviewer I, that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> I wish I just had more like I get real nervous when I talk so if I could have like learned that like there would have been like a chill program to take too I <laughs> I probably would have liked that. But yeah, so that's why I ended up doing that. And then I really, I, I really liked my, uh, or like ended up, Peter Goggin was my uh, advisor um, for my master's and then my PhD as well. And he was really supportive of the work I was doing and and his wife, Maureen, and, and pretty, anybody, I don't want to start naming lists of people, but like, it, I, I really enjoyed working with people there. So. so you get your master's degree, you're working still as a government contractor in Tempe. And walk us through 2007 through your decision to go back for your PhD. Yeah, during that time, I was uh, trying to dedicate my full-time effort to to being um, to to working during the government. I did a couple like uh, TDYs where I or temporary assignments. What's that mean? Uh, yeah, it's like uh, just like a temporary temporary assignment, I guess. Like where I'd spend a month in a in a location where like they they would have not enough people but too much work. <laughs> so like I went to so traveling uh, around a bit then. Yeah, yeah. So then I was like I couldn't go to school and and do these like assignments. Um, right. Yeah. So I I didn't do any of of that. Um, I did. I think one year, 2009, I taught some community college classes. Uh, it was my first experience. So I did try to, I was home for a little bit of time during that time. But then. Where was that at? Is that in Tempe? Um, it was, it was a smaller, it was like the county below Phoenix. Um, of, oh, I gotcha. That's kind of like a, a not I don't know how to describe it, exurb or what, what do they call yeah. suburbs that are like really far away. <laughs> yeah. So where all did these temporary assignments send you? Uh, I didn't have like too many, but it was like I kept trying to, to volunteer. I think I did one in like Fort Leonard Wood in uh, New York or Newark. Newark was different than New York. Um, and where else did I go? Omaha. Okay. Not an exotic list of, of places. Kansas City, I got to go back to Kansas City once. And then I had like some like a corporate thing in Denver. Anyway, it was it was a little bit of traveling, but um, I just I don't know. I wasn't ready to go back to school either because I was I thought, you know, that I knew Matt, like a Ph.D. was a, a larger commitment. Um, and I wasn't sure that was where I was going. So talk a little bit about some of your day to day activities in your job during this time. What are you doing? Like what is what is Sarah Young waking up and doing during the day to day? Because a lot of us just have this idea, I think. Well, I certainly don't want to speak for everyone, but like we just have this idea of what a government employee is, and it's basically what we see in, you know, our media. Absolutely. <laughs> Cubicles, suits, you yeah. know, professional wear, haircuts, eighty four hundred dollar haircuts, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what what was what was your what were you doing? Your day to days. Like, you know, I know this was a decade over a decade ago, yeah. but 
Or a decade ago. Or yeah, yeah. It was now. I think it was. I think I quit in February 2014. So it was like. Yeah, um, I, th- I I worked out pretty much out of my car, so I would just get like a list of cases to do. Um, it would be like, oh, this is this person's life. Go verify it, I guess you could say, um, without going so into So like a case, they give you like a case file of an individual person who was looking to gain government clearance for some project or something like that? Yeah, yeah, and then I would just, yeah, go go investigate the the, the veracity of that docu uh, file and what types of methods of investigation are we talking about here um yeah like personal interviews uh record review i can't think of mostly that like they're different types of people i don't know how much i can get into (laughs) i don't know how much i can get into it but um yeah it was just a lot of a lot of interviews and and records and and writing up like the, the kind of like a summary of it that, yeah, I, I also like the corporate like project management side of like assigning cases. I think they're they had some issues within the back background investigation system is somewhat broken, I would say, or at least like there's so much work and not enough time to do it in and not enough people. And I don't think you can ever staff as many people as they need to. So you would always be like thinking of trying to think of creative ways to get work done fast how to zone better and and whatnot so i i guess i enjoyed like the the more administrative work just because i was trying to be like i want to solve these problems i want to make things better and i think that's what appealed to me to academia too i always thought it was like this place where you could make things better and solve problems you did this for a while i guess after your master's degree almost seven years still yeah what prompted you on february 21st (laughs) 2014 <laughs> to quit to quit your and certainly I mean I don't know if if you quit your job decided to quit your job on February 21st but what made you decide to leave your job and go back to school and pursue a PhD well I guess you know I, I guess I was I quit then but I I had uh, taken some leave of absence I, I started the PhD in 2012 um, I was actually on a detail I think to Washington DC at the time but I was just I took like one online course and then I was just going to take it really slow I thought if it takes me 10 years fine I'll just do it on the in my spare time um, and then I was able to get a TA position at, at ASU which yeah I mean it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't a, a pay raise <laughs> mind you but um, I thought you know what maybe maybe this is time to do something different and also yeah like the the whole the the corporation that I was working for I guess had done Edward Snowden's background investigation, as well as um, Aaron Alexis, who was another individual that like a workplace shooter type individual at the Washington Navy Yards. And so like at that time, like the the industry had I felt like it was kind of in, in disarray. And I kind of thought this is this things are things aren't going well at this at this uh, corporation. And so I quit. Um, or I'd taken some like a couple leaves of absences that I could um and so that I could do the TA and then I eventually yeah, quit um, because and then the, the, the company like declared bankruptcy. So um, I'm glad I left because it declared bankruptcy <laughs> that summer. <laughs> I, I guess I could see so, what, what was happening. I could have moved to a different agency that just did it. So it's not like my job was over. Um, but I, I thought this is a different direction I need to go to. Um, so when you say that your your agency handled the backgrounds for for Snowden and for Aaron Alexis. What what does that mean? 
Um, they were the ones that had done, I guess, his background of it. According to Congress, I wasn't involved, obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, like according to documentation, they were reportedly the ones that had checked the background. So and that's kind of what leads me to my research nowadays, law enforcement and predictive analytics or prediction. They weren't necessarily using prediction, predictive analytics for background investigations, but I feel like background investigations are like the old school form of prediction. Like, you know, if, uh, oh, we're going to look at your past and then we're going to be able to tell what you do in the future because you somehow have done, uh, because what you what you did in the past certainly will lead to, to future activities. The title of your dissertation is The Rhetoric of Surveillance in Post-Snowden Background Investigation Policy Reform. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. there, Snowden, right, mm-hmm. has had a, a humongous impact on your research, on your academic life. Maybe you can uh, expand about a little bit about how that works and and and, and how your research and about your research. Yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily study Snowden in particular, but I feel like at least for yeah, the other background investigation in industry, um, he represents like this pivotal point not necessarily yeah. i just think that uh, there's always cycles in the background investigation process if you like historically look at the uh, there's always these breaches these like the espionage plague or something like that of like the 70s i i should have reviewed my my timeline but there's always these like moments of cyclical waves of of uh, concern for the investigation but so i think he's just the most recent one kind of and you in the way people say like, oh, it's a post 9-11 security reform or something like that. I think there's like it's a post Snowden um, security reform. So I, I guess there's just increased scrutiny in the, the whole background investigation process. So um, I, I wanted to study that and I wanted to I, I had hopes to, to make it make it better or at least interrogate it because I don't think we talk enough about like uh uh, classified information or how we classify information, how we assume, yeah, that people like background investigations. I, I, I think background, it's, it's a an area that needs more attention and probably, well, yeah, isn't have attention because a lot of times it's like a closed backstage kind of event. My question was going to be, why do you not, why do you think we don't talk about it enough? But mm-hmm. then you mentioned it's like a, a, a backdoor activity, right? How do we how do we overcome that? Like, it's the thing I'm just thinking of this. Like, how do how does the academy translate what they're saying for the public? Like, how do we how do we do this? How do we make the public more engaged and involved and, and want to know more about about surveillance tactics and practices? Yeah, you know, I think my what my what I find the most interesting is. And it seems rather, it seems almost like watching C-SPAN, but it's like these like, <laughs> like these like government documents that seem so like, like there won't be anything of, in, or not of interest, but like there's like, I love to look at like congressional hearings and like places of like where, where Congress is like fighting about like certain policy reforms. So I, I guess like my... I, what I enjoy in my research is looking at certain policies and looking about like uh, or policy analysis so you can see what's happening, see what they want to do, what they haven't done, what, what what's the, the concerns. And not that Congress necessarily represents like the concerns of the agency, because I think like an agency has its own issues that probably aren't going to be talked about by Congress. But at least there's some 
record of, of conversation about a particular issue in, in I guess, online and government um, accountability reports. So... My name is Trevor Meyer, and I'm an assistant professor in language literature and writing at Northwest Missouri State University. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this style? Then the Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast's core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form to the website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet, follow the podcast on Facebook, or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. What sites did you look at for your dissertation? What policies did you review and interrogate? Um, I, I think I basically looked at uh, several hearings. Um, I, I did some search terms and then looked, uh, retrieved any of the government documents that came up. I, and it was like a handful of hearings, um, a couple like bills that had been in, or acts or bills that had been introduced and some reports I almost feel like Aaron Alexis, like the issues that he caught, or like um, his work was almost more, uh, or like his, the incident of Aaron Alexis had more impact than Edward Snowden. Um, they just took place around, uh, Alexis, I think, was in September of the same year, um, and Edward Snowden's was in June. And either the combination of both or the fact that Alexis apparently had more online work. There, more of the flaws of the background investigation process were revealed in Aaron Alexis's issues rather than Snowden's background investigation. Like they, the police department wasn't able or didn't provide like a criminal record that had they had retrieved that they would have been able to um, look, find some criminal record that Alexis would have had. Anyway, they, there, there was more mismanagement, I think, in, in Alexis's case. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I looked at several documents and, and he, there's some pretty uh, interesting um, reports of, of Alexis's, like what went wrong in Alexis's case. So Alexis was a active shooter situation. Yeah, he went into the Navy Yards, um, Washington Navy Yards and like killed 12 people or 13 people. I forget which. Um, I think it made a, a difference to me, too, because that detail that I was on when I went to, uh, or when I first started like the P the PhD program, I said it was mm -hmm. in Washington, DC. It was at the, the Navy yards. So I feel like 
it was just like a year to the day that I was there. So I feel like, oh my goodness, what if, like it just made an, it kind of like made an impact on me. Like this is, uh, I don't want to say like shit got real, but I mean, I'm like, I'm like interviewing these people and I'm good thing. I didn't have that guy's background investigation. You know, I just felt like this, it was, it, it, I don't know. I was. I uh. I think uh, a thing that I'm noticing about your research there is that you're really, really good at localizing your research based on your experiences, <laughs> which I think is super cool and super smart because that's what we're supposed to be doing in rhetoric and composition and technical communication. So Alexis is just like one active shooter. You know, we've got, you know, uh, four C's is going to be in Milwaukee, and they just. Uh, experienced an active shooter and of course we're coming off the hills uh last year of what happened in new zealand and then of course to pittsburgh the year before that i mean gosh could i just keep naming them i mean you know what i mean um what is the intersection of of your research background checks and and the gun industry or active shooter situations um you know i think it in that case, what I would see would be a tighter connection would be the fact that law enforcement's use of predictive analytics or like mm-hmm. predictive policing to probably prevent those actions in the future by using social media or or any of the, I guess, the uh, platform policing, um, predictive policing type uh, instruments. I think that I, my my research here. I, so now I'm in the Netherlands, which was is kind of counter me going to Phoenix where the sun shines because I <laughs> seen the, the sun. It was sunny today, and I, I love the sun, but I haven't seen it for like since October, really. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm here, and I'm 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 trying to study predictive policing with a surveillance group here at Erasmus um, University, and and hopefully be able to talk to law enforcement agencies about why they'd want to use predictive analytics, what they think. What is predictive policing? So I guess I would say my my interpreted definition of predictive <laughs> policing and analytics is just, yeah, the use of kind of big data technology on, on platforms to do, I preemptively identify places where future crimes might occur, which is typical of modern surveillance practices, which is more preemptive rather than like retroactive. I'm hoping my, my research proposal was also like, I like the intersection of like technical communication, like how are we, how are like, and, and like the surveillance worker, cause that's, I feel like that's who I was. Like, I want to know how, how people are told to carry out this like technical work on, on predictive platforming or predictive policing platforms in order to or uh, how are they told that because i i'm training i i like to know how they're trained like how they're they're told like maybe the user experience with with those platforms i i think i'm interested in the yeah the technical communication of a of a police or law enforcement officer that's maybe constrained by handbooks because if i learned anything from working with the government yeah like everything you you have to work by the handbook and there's if you don't you're you're going to open yourself up to to problems so i i want to know how like how third party corporate entities are helping like a, a law enforcement agencies who have to use like a third party product to do policing to supposedly uh, prevent crime in the future 
What would an intersectional analysis of these technologies show us and how they're used and implemented in society? What do you mean by that, I guess? How are these technologies used to marginalize and oppress already marginalized and oppressed communities? I think it's, uh, I think you're building models of policing based on big data that one is already biased and two also builds in like the biased views of the creators of the algorithm and right. projects. So yeah, it, it, that, yeah, it's definitely something that, you know, if you treating technology as a neutral tool, it, it, you would ignore <laughs> any type of bias. So I think it's, it's concerning. Like when you take, yeah, like that, a lot of times the predictive policing is thought of as like this positivist piece of science that has no bias any longer. And it's just full of reinforcing already biased views, even if it doesn't, if it professes not to. So after you finished your PhD, uh, you started working as a lecturer at the University of Arizona in the School of Information. Yeah. Yeah, I was able, my I had applied earlier for a postdoc position and, and didn't get it. And then I had kept in contact with the, the person that interviewed me who came my, my boss. Um, she was like, a, I, I really liked her and I was able to you know, get a position there um, afterwards and kind of utilize the best of the rhetoric world for also teaching about information as well. That, yeah, it was, it was, it was, in, it's interesting. Yeah. I think there's a, I would encourage people to also think beyond, you know, maybe the English world to, to look mm -hmm. up or out, out and find other places. Cause they had like, I, I taught a digital storytelling class that utilized the pieces of technology to try to, to tell stories, either data visualization or, podcasts and whatnot um a, a surveillance class the one that jumped out to me when i was looking at some of your some of your materials was digital crime and social media that yeah. like if i saw that on the course register i would say sign me up what was that class about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that it was fun. We just kind of walked through like different types of, of crime. It, it, for this project, it, it's uh, part of the um, e-society course. So it wasn't as I wasn't like breaking down like the technical aspects of like how people go about doing crime, but um, more or less like talking about like the varying ways. And then um, at the, the end project that we kind of broke down a court case um we looked at napster and uh and digital file sharing and whatnot which is is interesting because i obviously from the dates in this i'm i'm a little bit older um and i i went in between like getting my ph or my mass like my bachelor's and then i moved to phoenix and then i then i got my master's and then i waited another year you know so i've been i'm older so yeah the, the people i'm teaching are like didn't weren't as familiar with Napster and even I was going to say, did any of them even would... know the word <laughs> Napster? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, I felt a little older. Um, cause they the way that they consume Napster. music now is completely different, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they were like, you bought music? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> my music. <laughs> Back <in> what? <laughs> <laughs> we all, I guess we all had a, a, a older brother or a friend's older brother who was getting us music from Napster, I felt like. 
those classes sound super cool. But you left the University of Arizona uh, last year, uh, and now you are a make, let, please correct me if I'm saying this wrong a leading fellows postdoc in media and communications, and that, like you mentioned before, is in a, at Erasmus University, Rotterdam, and that's in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, I've never been to the Netherlands. Had you ever <laughs> been to the Netherlands before before you moved recently? Uh, you know, I I done a, a, a book chapter with uh, one of the people I'm working with now. And so I I'll say I had applied to this. It's a leading fellows position before um, and they I didn't get it. <laughs> But I had like met the people, and so then I kind of like said, "Hey," or the 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 one of the people had a a book they were coming out with, and I ended up working in a book chapter. And part of that was that we would do a conference as well. So I was able to go last October when I thought I would I would never work here. So I thought this was my one chance to go to the Netherlands. This will be great. And then I ended up finding out in May of this year that I got I I, I had reapplied for the 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 fellowship and, and got it the second time. So um, not that I got it the second time, but the second time I tried, I got the fellowship. So yeah, I had uh, initially, I don't know, there's like a surveillance studies network listserv. And one of the, the people had put out that they were looking to sponsor someone at doing surveillance research. Um, and, and I was, I said, Hey, I'm interested. And they said, oh, great, um, but we already found somebody else. So that was the, there's three calls. This is like the leading fellows. It's like Leiden, Erasmus, and then a little a that doesn't make, make anything. And then the Delft, so L-E-A-D, um, leading fellows. It's part of like these three schools here in the, in the Netherlands. It frustratingly looks like a typo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, it's, it's a little a <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a typo. They they were trying. To, they're they're being clever. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So anyway, there was there was three calls. I I asked them to do the first one. They they said they had found somebody else. I didn't get in the second time, and then I tried a third time. So I guess if there's a a message I could leave, just be persistent with your. <laughs> you're trying and trying and trying again. That's um, what it takes sometimes, for sure. <laughs> What's your daily life there like in Rotterdam? Like, I don't, okay, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no, I don't know anything about the Netherlands. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it's, uh, I think they, they're really kind to themselves. Like, as far as like, I'm feeling like you're, you, like the idea here I, I'm getting is like, be nice to yourself. Don't work too hard where you like, feel like you're inadequate or something like that like wait but you're you still do... in academia <laughs> yeah yeah well <laughs> academia is a yeah it's a, it's still got those issues but i feel like it, it like the overall like the the na- like the neighborhood feel and like um they have i guess i'll say my my it all starts with the the windows of nether the netherlands the the houses have these huge windows and you like don't use this is what I've learned. I mean, I don't want to stereotype the Netherlands, but this is what I've been told to. <laughs> like, people don't use curtains because cause then it looks like you're hiding something. So you have mm. your, like, windows open all the time so that people can see in. So I, at the same time, I can see out. So I feel like I'm learning so much more about people because, like, oh, people don't come out till the sun comes up. Like, I don't have this push to get up at, like, 5 a.m., although I do because I have 
kids, <laughs> but I, I, I feel like there's this like, uh, just get up when the sun comes up. They, they respect their sleep here. Like it's okay to sleep in. It's okay to be like, to come in when you need to, you know, I, I guess I'm just feeling like this, like sense of like support that like as coming from, not that I didn't feel unsupported in the U S <laughs> working in, in it, but it, it just feels like a, I don't know. They're just, it's more of a laid back. And I'm not laid back, so it was so hard <laughs> when I first came here. I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's go, everybody, let's do this, let's do this. And it's like, well, just come on, lay, chill out. So, so anyway, yeah, a, a day in the Netherlands for me is I ride my bike to to work because everybody rides bikes, even if it's cold and rainy. And I come into the office and I write and I talk to people and I say, I wave. <laughs> it's nice because I, I um. I've the government job was like always driving somewhere else. And then um, it, I, I liked the, the U of A um, and it, it was online though, too. So um, it's it's interesting to be in an office with with people and, and get to say, like socialize. So anyway, I, I, I write and socialize. <laughs> so that cultural nuance that you mentioned of like curtains and curtains being down. Right. I think that that perhaps plays into your your work and surveillance perhaps in a certain way yeah yeah it's it's funny that you say that because um so we live like it's there uh, we live in like a little townhouse but like it's a uh, surrounded by like huge condo not condos i don't know just large apartments so like uh, not huge i guess mega they're, structures <laughs> yeah they're bigger than houses there's you know, like 15 <laughs> floors or something like that for me that's huge like to okay, right next yeah. to our house anyway like one day we were out and the lady somebody stopped us me and my husband stopped they stopped us on the street and they say what happened to the people that live there and i'm like i have no idea who this lady is and she's and we we're like uh she goes you live at this house and i was like <laughs> I guess so. Yes. And then she was like, our whole, our whole floor is betting that the people that lived in your house are on vacation and, and you're, cause we're just renting. Cause we we're just here for, um, you know, a temporary time for this fellowship. And anyway, so they're like, we're, we're betting that they went such and such place. And it was like, it was just weird because I'm like <laughs> the entire floor is like, <laughs> has a, like a, a, a bet on us. Like, she's like, I'm going to win the, the money or it, it implied an actual like bet <laughs> that was um, on our house. So anyway, so yes, I, apparently they can see in our house <laughs> um, and, and do actively do so and aren't ashamed to admit it. <laughs> so, yeah. so, and I really felt like, well, this is where surveillance meets the road, I guess. I know you've got a lot of stuff going uh, going on in terms of the research that you're doing, but you're also teaching a couple of classes, or at least a couple of sections of privacy surveillance and new media technologies. Uh, that's going on right now, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What are y'all doing? Um, we just uh, today we're I, I have a couple guest speakers each week. Um, part of the I'm part of like the media algorithms privacy and surveillance group here, like the it's maps group. Um, so like s- several of the professors have come in to, to talk at the each week, week, each week. So today was actually, yeah, the law enforcement and um, surveillance class, like traditional ideas of surveillance that have maybe not aren't so traditional anymore. And how uh, the, our guest speaker was talking about how the police reaches out through crowdsourcing social uh, to, to kind of utilize surveillance to, to kind of get some of their work done. So on social media. You've got a couple articles coming out. Let's talk about them. The 
First one that I want to talk about is called Origin Stories, Surveillance, and Digital Alter Egos. That's going to be in Screen Bodies in Spring 2020. What does that work about? I kind of like this one, and there's one in the the Computers and Composition one, too. Yeah, let me go ahead and say the name of that one, too, real quick. That's Your Digital Alter Ego, the superhero slash villain you Never wanted transcending <laughs> space and time. That's a hell of a title, Sarah. It's got everything you need. Dash everything but a colon. I see. You traded the colon for parentheses, slashes, and dashes and a I question know. mark. It, it irritates me because I'm like, wait, what's grammatic? Like or like <laughs> punctual punctuation here? I um, love it. So, do you think it would be better to talk about those in tandem and to talk about the digital alter ego, or you want to split up and talk? about in separate uh, probably in tandem because yeah like right. one the the first the the computers in composition one with the the wild title i guess uh i i was there's this i was reading some surveillance literature about how um like your your body of digital data is culled from like the tentacles of surveillance assemblage or something like that um and i got me thinking of like this like superhero superhuman body that like is like extrapolated from our our data um so i kind of started playing around with that idea and i guess i use it as a heuristic to explain the modern, like the, I don't say modern forms, but more contemporary forms of surveillance that the, and my husband and, and I argue, I'm like, is, is our data a superhero? Um, and I'm say, I say, I guess I would like to reiterate, it's, I think it has superhuman characteristics. <laughs> um, and I feel like, uh, like our data can like pop up in one place and pop up in another. And it's, it's super strong because it's got this, uh, it, it can sort us into categories and it's kind of transcendent and, and over space and time. Yeah. Cause it, pops up one place and not the other and um it it changes forms so it kind of has like a like I, I don't know why i can't think of the word um but uh multiple personalities kind of like it it, it can be whatever it is is what like transcendent forms right yeah yeah um i, I guess so I, I the whole idea is like our digital just kind of reframing our digital bodies because i I wanted a way to talk about surveillance to class, like my class, that in a way that would kind of put a face to the, <laughs> or put a body to to surveillance data. And I, I think mm-hmm. the other article, the the in screen bodies, I, I it was the they work together because I think that the um, a lot of times you'll get that pushback of like either surveillance doesn't matter because if you haven't done anything. Or, or like the privacy. I, I guess you, you can't use Orwell and you can't use the Panopticon, which are two familiar ways to explain um, surveillance, um, necessarily to explain more contemporary forms of surveillance or, or data valence because the, the physical nature of surveillance has changed. It's more of data driven. It's rhizomatic versus like um, a longitude or uh, uh, lateral so anyway there's there's it's it's this new surveillance so i was saying that we have to have like a new origin story it's not necessarily i mean a new origin story but we have to reframe um surveillance to to different different origins so it's like the origin story of our data comes from surveillance or interface surveillance um and kind of has superhuman characteristics (laughs) so that's a fascinating metaphor 
the superhuman, the alter ego. I absolutely love it. <laughs> and uh, you start talking about, you know, I, and and I appreciate that your work is like pushing past like Orwellian notions or surveillance and like pushing past, well past really uh, Bentham's Panopticon, et cetera. And firmly situating yourself in like the era of new surveillance a la Marx. But I wonder where do you see this metaphor going? You know, I, I think that to me, I just, I think the fun in it is like to use it as a heuristic for cla- my class. Cause I do, I get, yeah. I, you know, if, if I get nervous, <laughs> sometimes I get nervous and it feels fun for me to like use this as like, okay, this is this, it's a fun, I get excited about it. So I guess it, where it's going, it's, it just helps me explain it to people in an excited, excitable way and kind of like talk about superheroes and and some of the fun of it is saying like where does the metaphor break down how is it not like as a superhuman like because i know there's it's not uh necessarily like in all ways a superhuman form of of our digital data you know um so i i think it's just the fun of and talking about it i feel like it's a pedagogical heuristic yeah anything enjoy your night it was so great to meet you Sarah Young. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast's visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Ret and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com and you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.